You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It's here. Viagra for women. That was the headline in the New York Times last week. Viagra for women backed by an FDA panel. A lot of people scan headlines, see a headline, don't read the story. And if you read the story about Viagra for women, finally the men have had Cialis and the men have had Viagra for a long time, more than a decade, and poor women have had nothing, no pill that they can take that Makes them horny or makes them want to fuck. And finally, it's here, Viagra for Women. But if you read the piece, if you read the whole story, it's a lot more complicated than that and a lot more worrisome than that because this new drug, which is called something unpronounceable, uh, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce it, Flybanserin, Flybanserin, Flibanserin, I'm not sure which syllable to put the emphasis on, but We'll call it flybanserin here uh, on the podcast. Um, it's a daily drug that women can now take. The FDA has approved it. It's going to be rolled out uh, that treats what's called uh, hypoactive sexual desire, which is women with low to no sexual desire where there are not other problems. There's not an underlying medical issue that's been diagnosed. They're not angry at their partners, women who just don't want to fuck and feel bad about it and would like to fuck. This pill is supposedly – it's been developed and designed to make them want to fuck, to make them horny. Now, this is different than what Viagra does because what Viagra does is it takes a horny guy who wants to fuck and can't get a boner and it helps him get a boner. It treats that condition, that inability to, to get and keep an erection. That's what Viagra does. Viagra doesn't take a not horny guy and make him horny. It takes a horny guy and makes him operable, right? What this drug does is it takes theoretically a non-horny woman and makes her horny, makes her want to fuck. This drug, this same drug, was rejected twice before and once rejected unanimously by the same FDA panel, but it has now been approved after a campaign waged by an organization called Even the Score that presented the approval of this drug as kind of a gender equity issue because guys had a pill, women deserve their own pill. Even if the pill we're talking about for women doesn't really fucking do much. Quoting the New York Times, the women who took part were having an average of two to three of what they defined as sexually satisfying events per month when the studies began. Once they started taking the drug, the number of such events increased, but only by about one event per month, more than women in the trial who got a placebo. Continuing, women getting flybanserin also reported on monthly questionnaires that they felt more desire, although the difference compared with the placebo was only 0.3 points on a scale ranging from 1.2 to 6.0. So this drug has a very minimal effect. You're talking about taking a daily pill forever that you cannot consume uh, at the same time. You cannot use if you're using birth control pills and you cannot use if you are drinking alcohol. You're talking about taking this pill every day forever so you can maybe feel a tiny bit hornier and maybe have sex one more time a month than you're currently having it. This is not evening the score. Even the score, the group that pushed for the approval, pushed for this reversal, right? It was unapproved, twice rejected, pushed to have that decision reversed, called even the score, was underwritten by Sprout Pharmaceuticals, the developer of Flybanserin. 
And now we have this pill and now it's approved and now women are going to go and take it despite the fact that in addition to not really doing much, certainly not doing much more than, I don't know, a bong hit or a glass of wine might do has side effects and potentially serious side effects. Those side effects are low blood pressure and fainting. Apparently one woman who was enrolled in clinical trials fainted and got a concussion when she fell. And again, you can't take this pill with birth control pills and you can't take this pill with uh, if you're drinking alcohol, which most sensible people do, right? Including most sensible people who are thinking about or want to have or about to have sex will sometimes knock one back. But not if you're on this drug for the rest of your fucking life that supposedly evens the score. The argument that some people are making is approval of this drug will lead to the development and approval of other drugs. And that's a good thing. And, and that sort of implicitly acknowledges that this drug isn't doing what it's being billed as doing that. Oh yeah, let's approve this shitty drug that really doesn't do much because then they'll come out with some drugs that maybe do something. And that to me just seems batshit. Part of the agreement with the FDA, uh, that Sprout Pharmaceuticals made to leverage this approval out of the FDA was that they wouldn't advertise the drug on TV or radio for 18 months. It'll be 18 months before we see, ask your doctor if fly or whatever the fuck it's called is right for you, but it's coming in 18 months. And just like headlines and newspapers can be misleading, like Viagra for women, it's here. FDA approved those advertisements on television for drugs can be misleading. So when those ads begin to roll out, if you are suffering from low sexual desire, as some of you are, we get calls from people suffering from low sexual desire. Don't fall for it. Don't be the guinea pig. Don't rush out and try this drug. Try my favorite drug first. Try pot. Get a pot lozenge. Suck on that and see if that doesn't inspire you to suck on something else because this, this is not the answer for low sexual desire. This drug, I am not a doctor and I am not a researcher or a scientist. I am going to invite some doctors and researchers and scientists on the show to talk about this new unmiraculous miracle drug on a future program. But I wanted to get my two cents out there right away because I was already getting emails asking about this drug and from people who were celebrating it. People were really thrilled that finally, oh my God, oh look, Dan, isn't this great news? Emails from people who didn't actually read the whole news report about the drug, but are clearly listening to this show. So I wanted to burst your bubbles as quickly as I could, but we will have more people on who are more informed than I and in a better position to debunk this bullshit than I, including the AstroTurf campaign waged by a pharmaceutical company that led to its approval on a future show. But on today's show, we have Ophira Eisenberg from Ask Me Another, the NPR quiz show, here to take some of your sex questions. We have a great time. She's on the micro and the magnum because we we're having such a great time and she was here such a long time. Plus tons of your questions that I handle all by my lonesome right now. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old straightish woman calling from Chicago. I'm just beginning to discover my kinks, and I'm having a hard time getting my husband to play along. He's content with the same old, same old vanilla sex. A few weeks ago, on the same session, I asked him to throw me around a bit, and he said no. I asked him to go down on me, and he said he didn't feel like it. As a compromise, he got out the vibrator and used it on me, but he was stone-cold silent during it and looked so bored during this whole time. 
When I told him afterwards that these things upset me, he turned it around on me and told me that I made him feel inadequate, made me feel terrible for asking these things of him. He said that he's come a long way from me by doing things like 69 or using toys. Apparently, he feels that these things are kinky. A few days ago, I told him that I wanted to come home, smoke some weed, watch some porn, and have sex with him, and he completely turned me down. I don't understand, as I feel like this is a man's dream come true. I've mentioned in the past that I want to watch porn with him, he's yet, but it's yet to happen. I think he's extremely sexually repressed, and I don't know how to get him out of it. How can I tell him I want dirtier things like a master-slave relationship when I can't even get him to pull my hair a little bit? I can't tell you how delighted I was to get through your entire call without hearing you say the tragic word, kids. We have kids. You don't have kids. You are a kid. You're 26 years old. This is why you don't get married in your 20s. This is why you don't get married until you're into the things that you're into, right? You say you're 26 years old and you've married this person who is sexually not as adventurous as you are and you are now set up for five, six decades of frustration and he is set up for five, six decades of feeling inadequate or pestered or bothered or, or being a dick. He's being a dick to you. Like I'm not going to go down on you. I'm not going to poison you. I, I think he's being a dick, but you married this dick. And now you're going to have to unmarry this dick before kids, please, before kids. You are not sexually compatible. Apologize to each other. He didn't necessarily do anything wrong. He's having the sex with you that he signed up for initially, right? Whoever you were when you guys met isn't who you are rolling out now. And so you guys need to shake hands, get a lawyer, and start over again. And in your future relationships, potentially leading to marriage, you want to throw that wanna-be-in-a-master-slave relationship shit on the table before the wedding, long before the wedding, ages before the wedding. That's not stuff you bust out after the wedding. You do. You got to lay those kink cards down on the table. You're young. You're only 26. Maybe you are just coming into this stuff. Maybe you're just realizing all of this. So you're not at fault. You didn't withhold this information necessarily. But you did get married before you knew yourself, before you knew who you were and what you wanted. That's why you don't get married in your 20s, 26 fucking years old. You just don't do it. Luckily for you, undoing it isn't going to be that much of a trial because there are no kids, I assume. I assume that if there were kids, that would have been mentioned. But there are no kids. I'm not going to call you back because I don't want to find out there are kids because that will break my heart. Get a divorce. Get out there, have your sexual adventures, figure out who you are and what you want, and go find a guy who wants that to or comes close enough or a lot closer than this guy. Hey, Dan. My name is Jake. I'm an 18-year-old straight male. I've been dating my girlfriend for over a year now, and neither of us has had sex or really any sexual experiences to speak of before we started going out. It was awesome that we shared our first time, but the downside to it was that neither of us knew what we were doing. We've learned a lot since then, but one thing I'm still in the dark about is how to make her come. She can make herself come. It takes about 15 minutes, and she's brought herself to the brink and let me finish her off before, but I would really like to figure out how to do it on my own. 
at first I was like, all right, we just started. I'll get there eventually. But I've been trying to get her off for months now, and I feel like I'm still at square one. I tried a lot of tongue stuff, a lot of hand stuff to no avail, and I uh, just don't understand why I can't make it happen. I've heard that one way to make it easier would be getting a vibrator, and while I'm sure that she would be open to that idea, I've read that using a vibrator makes any other kind of stimulation seem vanilla by comparison. If you have any suggestions or anything you think could help, I'd be really grateful. You're young, she's young. And it sounds like you're kind of, sort of, doing everything right. You're invested in her pleasure, invested in getting her off. She is capable of having an orgasm. She can masturbate. Uh, one of the things I advise people who are having trouble getting their partner there or are having trouble being brought to that edge or being gotten off by their partners to get themselves close to the edge and then let their partner dive in and take over. And you guys are doing all that. Now you need to relax and keep doing all that and keep doing that. She gets herself close and then you join in or take over and just make that point at which you join in or take over come a little sooner. That, that place that she gets to where she can relax and allow you to drive will arrive sooner. She'll arrive at that place sooner. The interval between you taking over and her getting off will begin to grow if you stop rushing it, if you just relax and let this play out. And it can take years that you've only been sexually active together for a year and you're not yet there. Doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Doesn't mean that her junk is broken. Doesn't mean that you're inadequate in any way. She's just still growing into her orgasmic capacity and you are still learning to roll with and appreciate each other's bodies. Now on the issue of the vibrator, get a fucking vibrator. Go get a vibrator. When you read online people stressing about how vibrators make other kinds of stimulation feel vanilla, what you're hearing is people saying vibrators do things dicks don't do. And they do. They vibrate. And that is something dicks don't do. And that's something a lot of women really need. Remember, most of her clitoral tissues are buried inside her body. The We call the clit. We say that that's like the whole deal, the clit. There it all is. That's just the exposed head. That's the glands of the clit, analogous to the head of your penis. She has a clitoral shaft as well. She has clitoral erectile chambers that are buried inside her body. And just like sex for you isn't just rubbing the head of your penis, it's also engaging your shaft and your balls and your taint. And that's not just sex. I mean, just penile stimulation for you is all of that in play. For a lot of women, you can't – a lot of women can't get to the entire clitoral apparatus being in play without the aid of a vibrator sending deep buzz into her body through layers of skin and fat and muscle and all the rest of it. And that's not – a problem. That's not a, a bug. That's a feature. A lot of women's junk is buried deep in the woman. And a vibrator is a tool that allows her to stimulate that junk of hers and allows you to stimulate that junk of hers. And rather than creating a dependency, it can activate all of that. It can create new carve new neural pathways that engage all the parts of her clitoris. And it's not going to create a dependency on the vibrator for her unless she's one of those women who depends on a vibrator because it's the, literally the only thing that works for her. And you're going to tell her not to use this thing that works for her because what? Because insecurity? Because 
there's a better way to have an orgasm or other way to have an orgasm. No. People discover themselves sexually. They experiment. They learn. They grow. They find the things that work for them. And for a lot of women, the only thing that works for them is the vibrator. And the last thing that those women need is an insecure male or female partner slapping the vibrator out of their hands and telling them that they're doing orgasms wrong. It's a tool, a tool that some people need. And then other people misinterpret that need as a created dependency. It's not a created dependency. It's what they needed all along and what they will need going into the future. Don't be insecure. Incorporate it into your repertoire. And remember, when that tool is in your hand, as I've said before, you are building that house. When she gets off, you made that happen. Even if you used a vibrator, nobody looks at a carpenter who built a house and said, oh, you used a hammer. You didn't build that house. You got her off. She had an orgasm. You had a hammer and you had a hammer in your hand. You had a vibrating hammer in your hand. You built that orgasm for and with her. And you should be proud of that and secure in that and grateful that those vibrators exist out there. Nothing is sexier than self-confidence. A man with a vibrator in his hand who is not cringing, weeping, intimidated, insecure about that vibrator is what? Self-confident. And that's sexy. Get her a vibrator. Keep getting her off the way you are getting her off now with her stimulating herself and then you jumping in and keep enjoying each other, enjoying her pleasure and your capacity to assist her in obtaining that pleasure and keep enjoying that together and letting it grow and evolve and see where you go and stop stressing about whether you're doing it right or wrong because it sounds like you are doing everything right except for the vibrator hang up. That's wrong and you're going to stop that today. Hi, 35-year-old straight male. You guys have sort of a little more esoteric question. After a couple of long-term relationships that ended in really nasty, awful ways and, you know, some other ones kind of in between. I'm just kind of gotten to be pretty jaded about the whole notion of relationships and just asking myself kind of what's the fucking point. I guess just sort of like sick of the heartache or even the threat of it or what sort of seems like the inevitability of it. Anyway, any of your thoughts would be great. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. The trick is you have to go into all subsequent relationships after that first or second or third one fails with a default kind of attitude or default setting that it's going to work out. Right? You don't go in with the default setting or attitude that this is never going to work. You go in thinking this might be the one that works out and I'm going to have a positive attitude and I'm going to be constructive rather than finding fault and ginning up you know, the reasons or the excuses for why this will never work out so I can walk away or make myself horrifying and unpleasant so the other person walks away and then I can swan around playing the victim. You just have to be able to do what you do when you watch Game of Thrones or go to the movies or watch a play. You suspend your disbelief, right? You throw yourself into that fantasy world. You, you accept the premise of whatever's unfolding before you, right? And you have to do that with relationships too. You accept the premise that this time it's going to work out. This could be the one, not that there's a one, but this could be the relationship that is the one that works out long term. Right? With not the one, but the 0.64 that you're rounding the fuck up to one. And 
it's easier said than done. I realize there are people out there who've been burned multiple times. Uh, sometimes, you know, if every relationship you're in is a shit show, disaster, psychodrama, you may be the common denominator. You may be creating that for yourself, picking the wrong people, or you may be the icky person, right? You need to be self-critical and get some therapy, ask your friends for their input. And if at the end of that process, you just conclude with your rational hat on that it was just bad luck, dumb luck, you know, two, three, four relationships in a row that didn't work out for whatever reason and nobody was a monster or a villain, just you haven't met the person who could be the person you're with for the long haul yet, you go into that next relationship with a sunny, hopeful, upbeat disposition because this person could be that person. And you have to find that capacity in yourself to create those settings. I'm sounding so woo-woo in this answer, but to create those settings of sunny optimism, to will them. Because if you go in expecting the worst, that's probably what you're going to get. You will behave in a shitty way. You will draw shittiness out of that other person and it will be another shitty relationship. But if you go in expecting good and giving good, it might be good. might not be good, but it might be good. And if it is good, great. You win. And if it's not good, then you have to do it all over again with someone else. And it helps if you look back at the relationships you've been in that have failed, not as failed relationships, but as relationships that worked out for however long you were in them. You know, if there's a messy ending, if there's emotional abuse or physical abuse or just, you know, horrifying scorched earth mistreatment on both parts, it's hard to look at that kind of a relationship as having been a success. But if you're with somebody for a while and you, you know, have some great times and you share some great experiences, and even if it ended, you know, in an, uh, 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 you know, no ending is particularly delightful, right? But if it ended in, you know, with rockiness and some recrimination and grief but that you can burn through and get past and tap back into what you liked about that person, how is that not a success, right? Even if you can't be in contact with that person anymore, even if you're not friends afterwards, if you can one day look back on that relationship and enjoy the memories and 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 identify the the things that that brought into your life that were good and worthwhile and lasting, even if it wasn't that person who lasted with you. Not all of your past relationships that failed are failures. A lot of our relationships that end are successes, but we are brought up to regard every relationship that ends as a failure. And then we convince ourselves of that. We regard them as demerits, black marks, failures, and then we feel awful about them. We should separate our relationships into two piles. Yeah, the, fa- the, the, <laughs> the ones we really regret, the, the failures, the abuse, the drama, the scorched earth, both sides, whatever. Yeah, failure. But good times, more good times than non-good times, parted as amicably as two people could, wish them well, maybe even contact with them, not a failure. That relationship is not going to the failure pile. So I would encourage you, caller, to look at your relationships, separate out the failures from the non-failures, and then do the work. Do the work that allows you to go into your next relationship. The self-critical work, the thoughtfulness that allows you to go into your next relationship with a sunny disposition, a sense of optimism, and the ability to suspend your disbelief and not to succumb to self-fulfilling prophecies. 
Hey, Dan, 26-year-old, single, straight female calling from the East Coast. My boyfriend dumped me about two months ago. He's been my best friend for six years, and now we don't communicate, really. And uh, what do I do to get over him? I joined a gym. I'm eating healthier. I work nonstop. I don't know what to do. I miss him. I can't have him back in my life because he's hurt me far too many times before. I just, I, I can't get over him. You can't get over him? Stop telling yourself that. You will get over him. You are not yet over him. You will get over him. People get over worse things than being dumped by someone that they liked very much, someone that they had a long history with, someone that they wish they could still be with who dumped them. People get over that every fucking day. They don't get over it in eight weeks. So that you're not over it yet doesn't mean you will never be over it ever. But the longer you tell yourself lies like, I can't get over it, the further off the day becomes when you are the fuck over it. Here's what you do. You keep going to the gym. You keep going out and hang out with friends. Wallow. Go see movies. Have a cry. Repeat. Right? All those things. Keep doing them. Keep doing them while telling yourself that you will get over it. Trying not to think about it. Go fuck some other people. Have some other experiences. And eventually you'll wake up one day and you will realize that you are over it. It sneaks up on you, that over it feeling. You may carry some small regret that you can tap into and that if you stare at it all day long and focus on it and play with it, you can keep that regret as if it's a wound. You can keep it open and bleeding all the fucking time. That's why it's important when you've been dumped and you're sad to distract yourself so you're not picking in the wound and keeping it open and bleeding. And one day you're going to look down and it's all going to be closed the fuck up. You may have a scar, but it'll be closed the fuck up. It won't be fucking bleeding anymore. But the longer you stand there on the treadmill at the gym – Repeating in your head, I can't get over it. The further off, the closing of the wound and the scarring over becomes. So, girlfriend, you will be over it one day. Go hang out with your gay buddies. Go to the gym. Fuck somebody else. Get out there. Live. Put some distance, some experience between you and this relationship that is over. And you'll get over it. You will get over it. Hi, Dan. My name's Florence and I'm calling from England, and I'm 20 years old. I was in a relationship with someone that I really, really loved, a guy who was similar age to me and at my university, and I really fell for him. Over the year and over my whole life, I've experienced a lot of difficult trials um, in my childhood and in relationships, and like I said, I've found myself wanting to call in about crazy threesomes or, you know, relationship problems so many times, but actually... This time, the time I finally did bring, it's because on Monday I got dumped. And I didn't know it was coming, and it's really, really fucking shit. (laughs) But the reason I'm calling and the actual question I have for you is I would like to ask you if you could just give some reassurance to all of us out there this week who have been dumped. Because we feel shit, and we all deep down know we're going to get over it, and it's going to be okay. But it would be good to hear some words of wisdom from you about how everything's going to be okay and everything's going to change for the better, hopefully. And that's my question. After all this time, please, can you just give us all a shout out because there's got to be some other people out there who are feeling as shit as me. 
This will be the third call in a row where I'm giving exactly the kinds of reassurances that you're asking for. Uh, misery loves companies, so maybe it's a good thing that we're letting all of you recently dumped people just vent and, and let it out. And you know you're not alone because you just listened to the previous call and I just ran through all the up with people uplift that I can possibly scrounge up in my dark little soul in a day. But I will assure you that everything is going to be okay. Define okay, though. You know, a person's definition of okay can evolve and change. I don't traffic in the lid for every pot. There's somebody out there for everyone. Lie, because it's not true. Some people wind up alone. And so if by okay you mean I will find someone else, then not everybody does. I'm not telling you at 20 that you've just been dumped and you're never going to be in a relationship ever again. But there are people out there who won't ever be in a relationship ever again. This is not the comfort and uplift that you sought, I bet. The trick is for all of us to make sure that we are building lives for ourselves that are happy and fulfilling and interesting and textured and varied, whether we're single or not, because there will always be times in our lives when we are single. I could, I'm not single. I could be single tomorrow. Shit happens. I could go home and Terry could dump me or something awful could happen. I could be single tomorrow. So it's important that my whole identity isn't wrapped up in my relationship, right? It's important for each of us as individuals that our identities aren't wrapped up in our relationships. So in some ways, the skill set that you're exercising when you're dumped, in the case of the previous caller, get out there, live a little, join the gym, eat better, go places, do things. Those are things that you should be doing whether you're in a relationship or not. You should be going places, doing things, exercising, eating right, having experiences, living. You don't just start doing those things when you're alone. You do those things when you're together so that if you wind up alone again, your life is still awesome. Your life is still good. Your life is still interesting. You're still engaged. You don't have to re-engage because the relationship is over and now you can enter the world of the living again. You want to stay engaged at all times because – some of us will wind up single. Some of us who are not single will wind up single again. So my charge to you, caller, get out there, have fun. And when you find that next person that you can be with, keep getting out there, keep having fun with that person and on your own without that person, even while you're with that person. So that if this happens to you again, it's not such a devastating loss. And if you wind up alone, as some of us do, your life is still wonderful and interesting and worth living all by yourself. Hi, Dan. This is Jesse. I'm an 18-year-old straight guy. And people don't talk very often about people my age having trouble getting it up. They mostly talk about coming too fast, but... I've had some problems. Um, I started having sex and like had success once out of maybe 10 encounters. So I think it's just, I think it's just nerves and uh, putting pressure on myself. Um, and I'd like your advice on how to work through it. I have a chance this week to be in a threesome and I'd really like to do it, but I don't want to, you know, get embarrassed so if there's like a, an over-the-counter aphrodisiac that might, that might work in the short term, I'd love to know about that too. 
So when the pressure's on, your dick frequently deserts you. The solution is to take the pressure off. Not an aphrodisiac, not oysters, not rhino horns, not Spanish fly. Take the pressure off. If you have this three-way this weekend, you need to go into it telling yourself that hard or not hard, erection or no erection, you are going to have fun, you are going to give pleasure, and you are going to get pleasure. And the whole evening's entertainment doesn't hinge on your dick, that you have fingers, that you have a tongue, that you have forearms, that you have a brain, and that they, the other two people in the room, they have each other as well, and that fun can be had whether or not you get an erection. Your erection is irrelevant to the having of fun. Erection can be fun too. Bring in a boner to the table. That can be awesome. Bring a dildo. Bring some toys. Bring creativity, imagination, oral, digital stimulation. And just tell yourself that it'll be nice if you have an erection, but not necessary. You can still have sex. You can still have fun. And if you can believe that, if you go into that three-way believing that, wow, we're having a power of positive thinking podcast today, are we not? If you go into that experience believing that, not just telling yourself that, this paradoxical thing can happen where once the pressure is off, once the all expectations aren't focused on your dick, your dick is likelier to show up and be and stay erect if this is indeed a psychological problem and not a medical issue. Some young people, significant percent of people your age, do suffer from erectile dysfunction. You can go to the doctor. You can talk to the doctor. You can get Viagra. You can get Cialis. It works for young people with ED too. Erectile dysfunction, ED, ED. Sometimes it works on a physiological problem, a medical problem. And sometimes it really does just work on the psychological problem. You know, doctors don't always know from looking whether the guy they're talking to, it's a medical problem or a psychological problem. They give the prescription and it becomes – and it functions sort of as a placebo. It gives the guy who is lacking confidence in his ability to produce an erection confidence because he's producing these erections with the help of medical science. So popping that pill might actually help you get there too. Move on both fronts. Take the pressure off your dick. By telling yourself and your partners that you're going to have fun. And you should tell your partners that with new people, you often aren't able to get hard. So if you can't get hard, give them a heads up that you might not get hard, but you're still going to have fun and you're still going to get them off and you're still going to really enjoy this. So that they aren't looking to your dick and thinking, where is it either? Because they know they won't go in with expectations about your dick. They shouldn't. You don't want them going in with expectations about your dick and putting pressure on your dick either. You're going to go in with no expectations or putting pressure and you don't want your partners doing it either. So tell them in advance, but also think about getting those pills and popping one in advance. Attack the problem on both fronts. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 24-year-old gay guy calling from the Rocky Mountain state. And it's kind of a question about actually my boyfriend um, who is 22. So um, after we will have sex sometimes, and really it doesn't um, matter on the type, um, after he orgasms, um, minutes later, like if we're um, showering afterward and he has to use the bathroom, when he's peeing, he actually has like a second aftershock orgasm. So I guess my question is, um, is this common and what caused it? And can I learn to do it? Because they sound really, really intense. I've been doing this sex advice thing long enough that I feel confident in saying 
that if I haven't heard of it before, it's not that common. And I have not heard of aftershock orgasms before. I've heard of people who, after they come, men and women, and they go pee, they have sort of a post-orgasmic pee shudder that can be very pleasurable and rock them a little bit, but not of the intensity that you describe. Uh, as Debbie Herbenick, sex researcher, uh, Indiana University, Kinsey Institute, frequent guest on the show, has said that a lot of crazy-ass nerves are all bundled together in our genitals and that nerves can cross. And some people experience orgasmic-ish pleasures that are just one sort of orgasmy nerve being tripped by a nearby nerve that's tied to urination or some other important down-there sensation, right? So maybe that's your boyfriend. Maybe it's just like a cross nerve, a little neuron bank shot orgasm light. Or maybe he's just having that post-orgasm pee shudder, but it really shudders the fuck out of him. That said, not common. Confident in saying that. And I have no idea how to induce this. But maybe there's a listener out there who knows. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old lesbian from California. I have a bit of a problem. So I went on a date with a couple dates with another lesbian. And after the second date, we went to my place and got in a really hot and heavy makeout session. And she then revealed to me that she's trans, that she's a, a transgender woman, no top or bottom surgeries. And I told her it was okay with me because at the time it was okay. I was really turned on. I was feeling sexual chemistry. And we had a hot night. And I felt like I had some kind of revelation that I have a strong attraction to androgyny that I, that I had not expected. However, uh, the second night we slept together was a bit different. Uh, her pants came off this time and I gave her uh, a blowjob. And I no longer felt the uh, sexy feelings towards her anymore. And I thought I was going to be okay with her body as is, but it turns out that I'm not as comfortable with it or um, attracted to her. Um, how do I tell her, basically, hey, I, I know I said I was okay with this situation, but it turns out I'm not, in you know, a kind and considerate way. Vanessa Vitellio Urquhart uh, had a story, and I'm probably mispronouncing her last name. If so, Vanessa, I apologize. Had a story in Slate a few weeks ago called Straight Talk About Junk, Why the Terms Lesbian and Gay Are Linguistically Insufficient. And she goes on to unpack situations where someone may be uh, attracted to and willing to date cisgendered women and also trans men who have not had bottom surgery. So trans men who still have vaginas, and basically. Uh, and that's their deal breaker. they got to have vag, right? Can date a man, got to have a vag. Can date women, vag. And she calls them vaginophiles. And she calls people who can want to date, uh, you know, cisgendered men with penises but are also open to dating uh, trans women who have not had bottom surgery, who still have penises, calls them phallophiles. And she suggests, Vanessa suggests, and I think this is very deeply silly but whatever, suggests that we ditch the terms lesbian and gay and roll with – vaginophile and phallophile, which means that I and the tech-savvy at-risk youth in the room with me today who are straight girls, we are of the same community now. We are phallophiles. We're going to the phallophile pride parade together. Seems to me, caller, that you have discovered yourself to be a vaginophile. 
You are one of Vanessa's vagina files. And that is a perfectly legitimate thing to be. We are allowed to have distinct preferences about genitalia. I think we should all try to keep an open mind. And you did, not just an open mind, an open mouth. You were very open to this new experience. And what you discovered during this experience, this experiment, was that Dick's kind of a deal breaker for you as a lesbian, and that's okay. Not all lesbians feel the same way. And for all you knew, you might have been one of those lesbians who didn't feel that way. That's why you were willing to go there with this person. And you did. You went there. You are not obligated to stay there. And what do you say? You know, it doesn't sound like you feel obligated to stay there. You're calling, how do I break this to this person, to this woman without hurting her feelings? I don't know. Her feelings are likely to be hurt. This may frustrate her greatly. But she's just going to have to accept that is a fact that there are going to be women out there that her penis is going to be a deal breaker for. We all come to the table with certain deal breakers and limitations, physical, emotional, financial, mental, whatever. And those can sometimes, when we're on the receiving end of something about us having been identified as a deal breaker by somebody that we wish we could be in a relationship with, that can feel arbitrary and unfair and hurtful. Doesn't mean that person is obligated to stay with us forever. What we want in the world is more people to be open to experience, to different types of bodies, genders, gender expression, sexual orientations, people to be thoughtful about their tastes and the larger cultural forces that may have shaped them or coded them, and to push back against that to discover your real and actual desires and sexual tastes, right? We should all do that. And you did that. And you get credit for that. Open mind, open mouth. And if this woman, when you dump her, when you tell her that you don't want to continue to see her and she asks why, you're not obligated to say why. You can just say it's not working out and she can press you for the reason and then you may find yourself in a position where you have to lay it out and she may get hurt. I tell people don't press for the real reason if you're not prepared to hear it because it probably is going to be something you're not going to like and you can't unhear. But if she presses for the real reason, you can put it out there. You can put it on the table. But I don't think it's anything that you have to feel guilty about. Even if it does hurt her, you don't have to feel guilty about it because you're allowed to have a preference for partners with vaginas. Just as I am allowed to have a preference for partners with penises, just like the other phallophiles who are with me today in this room. Ophira Eisenberg <laughs> is a comedian, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, author of Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, and she is sitting here on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual building overlooking beautiful Puget Sound. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. In my uh, in my podcast studio with me. I can't believe it. I can't believe you would demean yourself like this. This is a dream. It's not demeaning. What are you doing this in is Seattle? Uplifting. Uh, I was uh, doing a show, actually, with The Moth. Oh, cool. Yeah, storytelling. We, we love The Moth, the storytelling show. They have their own podcast. They're on NPR. Yeah. And yep. so you're just a podcast slut. You're just running around the country doing everybody's well, podcast. Podcasts, now, you have been podcasting forever. But we know that podcasting is the new website. It's the new blog. It's like people are like, do you have a podcast? Why don't you have a podcast? What are you doing? It's crazy. Yeah. Andy Warhol was wrong. In the future, everyone will have a podcast for 15 minutes. And I figured out why it is, is because you can do something else while you listen to a podcast. So that means that people can be efficient. 
That's right. You do. You can walk around. You can plug in. You can go to the gym. You can. I have heard people say. I've asked people, "What do you do while listening to Ask Me Another?" And they've said, "Yeah, gym." But one person said, um, "We have sex," and I was like, "What? Why? Wow! <laughs> How could that? Yeah, if a quiz show." With nerdy uh, puzzles inspires your sex life. Right? I only ever have sex to on the media. On <laughs> yeah, that's right. NPR. That's right. Brooke Gladstone's <laughs> voice. It just fucking does it for me. She's amazing. Okay, so here you are in Seattle. Yeah. So I thought, because you're hilarious and I love Ask Me Another. Um, and you're a podcaster too, because your show is on NPR, but then there's the much more explicit extended podcast version where most of my appearance on your show wound That's up. That's right. That is true. The, <laughs> we thought since the extended. We, were, we thought since you were here and you're fucking hysterical and you wrote a book about relationships yep. and uh, arriving at monogamy. Arriving at monogamy. By fucking everybody else. Still there. You just run, ran out of people to fuck. Is that it? Is that, that's the point of your <laughs> book, right? I got old and tired. <laughs> <laughs> we thought since you were in town, we would invite you in to take some questions. Fantastic, yeah. Because you I, I, you can give sex advice. Well, I mean, I, when we had you on our show, I said, what, do you t- what does it take to be someone who gives great relationship and sex advice? And you said you basically have to be like nosy and confident and be the person that says, I'm going to do this. Right. So, and somebody has to ask you the question. And someone has to ask you the question. People are always saying, what qualifies you to give advice? I'm like, people ask me. Right. You look up advice in the dictionary, opinion about what could or should be done. Literally, the only qualification you need to give your opinion is some stupid fucker asked you for it. <laughs> That's right. People ask me. Well, because I, I wrote that book, which is a comedic memoir. But then when I did book readings, people would go, all right, so do you think that I should sleep around with a whole bunch of people and that will get me to the one? And I was like – this is not a how-to. <laughs> this is my story. But, you know, that because you just automatically... But everybody put... thinks everybody should do it the way they did it. Yeah. So you do think everybody should fuck everybody until they find the one. Although I don't think there is a one. There's yeah. a 0.64 that you round the fuck up to one. There is no one. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that you arrive at someone that you're like, yeah, all right. You've seen a lot. Those three so magic do. words, not I love you, guess you'll do. <laughs> Those are the three magic words. You're here. I'm here. Let's do it. Hey, Dan. I'm calling just because uh, I want your opinion on something. I am uh, have been seeing somebody, this guy, for a few months, and we're both recently divorced, and it's been amazing. We haven't fought at all. It's been, like, magical the whole time. He <laughs> has his ex-wife's name tattooed on his face, and Today, he has a tattoo appointment, and uh, he's said all week a few times, I wonder what I'm getting. Like, I wonder what I'm going to get. And I just have been biting my tongue because I'm not the kind of person to tell him what to do. I'd rather him do it on his own volition than having me tell him to do anything. So I'm just having anxiety about it, and I'm worried that if I see him and he hasn't got it covered, that it's going to be our first fight. And... I'm just wondering if I have any right to be upset about this. She's an absolutely insane person and is pretty much stalking him uh, right now. So it's just kind of an ugly reminder that would be nice if I didn't have to look at everything. His face? His face. (laughs) Ira Glass had the same problem, I'm sure. This comes up for (laughs) NPR hosts all the time. So I'm just going to leave it to you. Uh, Talk about someone that has a problem with commitment and not committing at the same time. I mean, that's an amazing thing to get a commitment of someone's 
name on your face. I mean, it's a bad idea anywhere on your body, but particularly. It kind of says like I'm not going to be able to work a lot of jobs. It says I have no judgment. I, I think that's the great sort of unspoken, unarticulated thing that's at work for most people when they're mating and dating and trying to pick a partner is people just intuitively on some level are looking for somebody with good judgment. Yes. And b- people don't articulate that. They say it in all sorts of different weird ways. When somebody like sh- tells you something on a first date that they maybe should have told you on a 12th date or, or six months <laughs> in, it doesn't matter that if six months in you would have been okay with it. You're not okay with it on the first date because it shows bad judgment that they would tell you this thing, whatever it was. Right then. That, I mean, they, uh, with the case of this guy, he didn't have to say anything on the first date. I mean, your question would be like, hey, but there, do you want to tell me about the person on your face? Yeah, bad judgment. I got, I, I'm the sort of person who gets – yeah, he didn't have to say something stupid on the first date. His face said, I'm the sort of person who gets crazy bitches' names tattooed on my face. Now, I, I, she didn't say anything about – and of course the woman is stalking him. I mean – <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she wants her name back. There are some control issues going on there right now. I would love to know where she tattooed his name, uh, if at all. But maybe the name is something like uh, – I mean, depending on what her name is, perhaps it can be altered into a different word. I mean, I wouldn't go Pam Spam, you know, because that's a little weird. Like if but... it's Judy, he could put Bloom after it. And sure. then it's an homage to a beloved young adult fiction author. That's right. Or uh... – <laughs> And then people would be like, what a sensitive man who really cared about women while they were going through their adolescence. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't the face tattoo. This is the issue. She says, I'm not the type of person to tell someone what to do. But if he doesn't do this thing that I'm not going to tell him to do, I'm going to go apeshit. Yeah. That's the issue here. Not the face tattoo. The issue is she – Doesn't want to be the type of person to tell him what to do, but she wants him to be the type of person who intuitively, instinctively knows what to do and does it. Which is classic, right? Which is classic lady shit. Like not to gender it because men do it too. But when people talk about this, it's usually talked about it. Women want men to read their minds. Men can't read your mind, right? And, And I doubt that the kind of guy who would get his wife's name tattooed on his face can read at all. But he can't read your mind. <laughs> well, he can read a birth certificate. So he needs to know going into this appointment that if it's that important to you that you have to stop looking at his ex-wife's name while he's fucking you, to, you need to say that. You need to say, I'm going to have a melt. Just like so you know, like I'm, I've been totally like okay with this. I, I'm trying to deal with it. It's a little weird and squicky. I'm really hoping that the tattoo appointment is about getting that covered up. And then see what he says. But don't like sit at home hoping that when he walks in, it's covered up and then lose your mind. Uh, But also, doesn't it sort of point to where they are at in their relationship? Like maybe there is some sort of uneven idea of where things – she said magical in a few months. But is it at the point where you're getting a face tattoo covered up? I mean that is a – that is a sort of new level. You would have to also (laughs) be very committed. That takes it from magical to tragical. (laughs) Tragical being the word of the day. So, you know, maybe if the guy comes back and it, so there's a couple levels because she could be like, why didn't you know that that's what I wanted to cover up? And you would go, oh my God, of course I'm going to get it covered up. I really like being with you. Or he could say, not there yet. That's why it's not getting covered up. I'm getting an additional tattoo. This is like an issue that comes up a lot, but it's usually like photographs of the ex that are on a wall oh, right. or a refrigerator or wedding photos this if it was is... a long-term relationship that are still out. And there comes a point where you can reasonably ask that person to put those things away. 
But I think that she has a right, even this early in the relationship, to ask him to put that away because, because it's so extreme. Because it's so it's in her face, and nobody, you know, nobody has sex with their new girlfriend holding the wedding photos over her face, <laughs> which is what this amounts to in in a way. I don't know if I'd be able to overlook that myself. But she's clearly entering all kinds of stuff because there's the face tattoo, then there's the ex wife that she is aware of mm-hmm. and who this person is, and has characterized her as a. Crazy bitch that is stalking him. But you know what? You don't want to be caller. You don't want to be the crazy the bitch he one. dated after the crazy bitch he divorced. And that's what you're setting yourself up to be. That's how you will be perceived if he comes home having gotten a different sort of tattoo. Right. And not the one you wanted him to get. And you explode in a rage. Right. If he got an X through it and her name, I think that also would be a larger red flag. That would be more bad judgment on display. Magical. So have a convo with your partner. Tell him. Tell him. (laughs) Don't tell him he must get it covered up now. Tell him that if you guys stay together for the long term, because a couple months in is not long term yet. I agree. That at some point he needs to get that covered up because you shouldn't have to look at his ex-wife's name on your boyfriend, potentially husband's face for the rest of your life. If there could be a meeting uh, organized between the tattoo artist the boyfriend, the ex-wife, a good therapist, and you, I would highly recommend that. A group setting. You, you would recommend? <laughs> I would not, not recommend Put that. them all together. If I can tape it, I would recommend <laughs> it because I think it would make a great show, but I, I might have to disagree with you here. Face tattoos coming on TLC. Hey, Dan. I am a 32-year-old bisexual polyamorous-ish man uh, living on the East Coast. I was recently in a poly relationship with a woman that I was completely devoted to, and she left me to be emotionally exclusive with her other partner. Um, It's been a month now, and I am still completely devastated. My question, however, is actually about kink. You said that some people are naturally kinky, and some people fall in love with a kinky person. Well, my former partner was kinky. And towards the end of our relationship, I was getting a little bit more into that um, and taking pleasure uh, in at least topping her myself. It was something I was interested in getting more into. So now I've sometimes found myself fantasizing about the idea of finding a submissive play partner that would be willing to role play as my ex and me punishing them for the wrongs that she did to me. Sort of a sexualized revenge therapy, you know, both, you know, fun sex and possibly emotional release and for me and, you know, hopefully meeting their needs as well uh, in terms of punishment and, um, and domination. Um, so my question is, is this healthy? Is this a good idea at all? I'm very new to kink, and although I understand it's all about negotiated safety and exchange of power, and any play partner would go into this knowing full well what we were doing and why. Is there a risk of bringing too much real emotion into a scene? Now, this, is, this is still pretty new to me. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that is a classic age-old question of uh, how do you get someone to personify your ex so you can punish them? I mean, this is this is uh, this guy is so creative. I actually applaud him. Oh, good. Yeah. I thought you were going to have a sort of gut negative reaction. No, I, you know, part of me, my first thought was like, oh my God, you need to get over this and move on. And then another part of me was like, why not? If you can find someone that agrees to this and is willing to participate, maybe that is an amazing way to deal with this. 
I have to agree with you. Um, my initial reaction was this is crazy yeah. and ew and yuck. But then I started thinking about this and, you know, punishing the person you're with now for the sins of your ex is something people do all the they just don't articulate it. They don't articulate it. They don't compartmentalize it. They're not thoughtful about it. They're not walling it off and making it like this play space they can jump into for a moment and then jump back out of. They have no perspective on it. They're not even aware that they're doing it. Right. So he wants to take this sort of emotional dynamic that ruins a lot of people's relationship and make it about sex and pleasure and play with a submissive partner who is aware that this is the role play scenario that they're signing up for and that they're excited about being a part of. And, you know, I think, okay, then. I, I don't know how easy it is to find that person. I mean, I don't know how you go about that set of auditions. There's a thing we call the internet. Yes, there's the internet. <laughs> that is really good at reaching out into the mass of humanity and <laughs> finding I, that one I, submissive plush of file <laughs> piss freak that you were looking for That's that right. you never thought you would meet. That's right. I mean, this seems like a fairly uh, unique request. But I, even the fact that he's like, so how much emotion can I put into it? I mean, just even having the wherewithal to start asking those questions, I, I think this guy could be onto something. Matter of fact, I feel like he could start an industry. You know, we have his phone number here if you're interested in giving him a buzz. <laughs> we could share it with you after the show. You seem a little intrigued by the I whole scenario. I don't think I could do it. I'd be like, uh, I think your, your ex-girlfriend's hair wasn't as good as I thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> I would make some alterations to the situation. Um, but I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm pro this idea. I'm I pro this okay. idea too. I just want him to go find the person and then report back on how it went. And his concern, your concern, caller, about going too far, getting too sort of wrapped up in the emotion of it, that's why baby steps. That's why safe words. That's why thoughtful, risk-aware, consensual kink, safe saying consensual kink. Um, you don't want to jump in to the deep end of the pool right away with a brand new partner. You know, you can have a role play scenario where you do a little bit of the script that, that, that you've perfected in your head. You know, there's the fantasy script you've played out in your head which is props and costumes and everything. And you say this and here's the script. Right. And yeah. then there's the actual sort of rolling it out in reality play with a new partner where you're role playing these fan this fantasy and that's going to be that little improvisational scene is going to be less complicated and you're going to go fewer places than you can in your imagination. You just need to be aware of that too, that you're not going to be able to do everything with this person if you find this person when you reach out into the internet to search for them, do everything you fantasized about. But you can do a few of those things and then revisit it and then maybe if they want to do it again, you can like continue to push the boundaries and take more steps and get closer to your fantasy scenario. I mean now if you're emailing them like profiles and pictures and stuff like that, I would I would still allow that person to be – who they are. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> but so that's where... That I, person doesn't have to get cosmetic surgery to more closely <laughs> resemble your ex. Dye your hair. No. Uh, but I have a feeling in the best case scenario, this guy would engage in this one or two times and realize, well, that's that. I mean, yeah, I've dealt with this problem. It's not that big of a deal or, you know, now that I've conquered it in my certain way, I'm ready to move on. And, maybe and, and that, that, that to me says not a kink. Usually people don't conquer their kinks. Sometimes people who aren't kinky will say, you know, my husband is a foot fetish. He bothered me about it forever. So I let him play with my feet. Now he wants to do it again. Right. I thought if we just scratched that itch, it would be as if that's how, you know, that's not how sex works. Why would that be how people who are 
sexually kinky work. That they only want to do it once and you're done. Like you only had intercourse once and you're done forever. You scratch that itch. I don't think though that this sounds like a kink. It sounds like somebody who's not – he said he wasn't kinky until he met her. Right. It sounds like you've put an erotic gloss over some of your anger and you want to have a sort of venti, eroticized sex moment with somebody else to move past it. But I don't think you're going to want to play this scenario out for the rest of your life. Right. It's not like somebody who fantasizes about being you know, a submissive in a dungeon somewhere forever. This is just you've eroticized this anger at your ex-girlfriend and you want to find sort of a healthy, upbeat, fun, sexy, bonerific, get somebody else off to way to work through it. Go yeah. for it. And carefully, end, carefully in a carefully. controlled setting. With safe words and baby steps. And perhaps a small reality television. Um, crew. Film crew in there. <laughs> Again, every single one of these so far have just really been a setup of this is amazing. We need more information. We need to more follow like, you More forever. like this on TLC, less like the Duggars <laughs> on right. TLC. Oh, my God. Yeah. Something a little more positive. Hi. I am a scientist, PhD level, but young. And I have sort of a, a unique problem. I've been listening to your show for many years now through my PhD and through my fellowship. And I've never heard a question like this, and I sort of just need to ask it. So my question is, you know, if I'm sort of wired at this point for the laboratory, if, I, if I've been, you know, a researcher essentially for 10 years now, how do I sort of correct that in the context of relationships? So what I find is that very often if I'm dating it's hard for me to take the lab coat off metaphorically. Like I will be on a date with someone I really care about and she will say something completely illogical and I will respond as a scientist, right? Like, cause that's sort of like the, the core idea in science is that the biggest fear is uh, propagating confusion. And so if somebody says something incredibly illogical over a beautiful candlelight dinner, you know, the, my lab coat mode sort of kicks in and I want to interrupt and say, hey, like, you know, be careful what you're saying has all these, you know, A, B, C, and D logical flaws. And so you can probably guess that my dating life has, you know, not been <laughs> perhaps as successful as uh, I would have liked, um, but uh, my science is has been very successful. <laughs> so what this guy needs is to reach into the internet and find that one woman out there who has a fetish for having her male companion point out logical flaws. You know what it I It made love? her super wet when her logical flaws were pointed out to her at a romantic candlelit dinner. They'd be perfect. What's for the headline other. of that? Do you like being corrected? Who <laughs> wouldn't say yes to that? Do you enjoy a sort of detached conversation where I tell you about all your I'm part Vulcan. Do you like Vulcans? <laughs> Uh, I um, I think okay. There's Let, a let's role play this. We're on a date. Okay, yeah. You say something illogical. Illogical. I correct you. Yeah. I, I put on my lab coat and correct you and point out the flaws in your logic, and then you say, "We're just having conversation. Why did you have to ruin our entire evening? Something like that." Oh, not not check, please, because <laughs> you're in such a hurry to get in my pants. You want to get me back to my apartment right fucking now? For example, if I said something, you know, something that's so common, right? Something like, uh, this creme brulee. I literally had a dream about creme brulee. <laughs> right? That is like the most common overuse of the word. But literally, you could have had a dream. I could have that had could dream. be true. Literally true that you had a dream about <laughs> creme brulee. Possible. Now, it would, it would, I'm pointing out your logical flaw here. <laughs> it would be you to say, this creme brulee 
is is so delicious I'm going to die. Right. It's going to kill me. This is so fucking delicious. Like then he would sit there and say well, You're not, not going logical. to die because creme brulee is just a matter of molecules that have been designed in a way that are biologically whatever, blah, <laughs> and blah, And deliciousness blah. <laughs> is never fatal. And by the way, I only speak like this because I'm a very successful scientist who got successful at a young age. I, and I just point that out because obviously this guy is achieved, but I am not exactly – I don't like the idea of someone justifying their lack of – um, conversational rapport, Tact. their ability to socialize, tactful, be a good companion because they are successful in a workplace that requires a certain kind of thinking. Maybe you're just kind of like not a great socializer and have to work on that. And I would like to, uh, you know, caller, it's too bad you didn't give us any examples of these logical fallacies. Like if I was at dinner with somebody and they started talking about their sign and astrology, right. I would think. Probably not for me, this person, but I wouldn't say anything because I don't believe in that astrology crap. And somebody who's like very invested in astrology, I find – I will infer from there that they're going to have lots of other character traits that will be dick shrivelers for me and this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> but I wouldn't say anything because it would be awkward. It would derail the evening. Who knows? Maybe this is just the one thing and if I get to know them a little better, this is their one little like irrational uh, spot in an otherwise logically sound mental environment and I can just like deal with this or, or, or live with it. But I would know not to fucking say anything right. at that moment. I would say, oh, really? And change the fucking subject. You have the option, Spock, of changing the fucking subject <laughs> instead, you know, but if they say, ugh, if they say Obama's a Muslim, if they say the moon is made of green cheese, if they say the earth is flat, if they say climate change is a conspiracy women deserve to be paid less whatever well everything but that <laughs> you get to like okay check please and, and let's get out of here but if they just like have some little like human beings are complicated and we tell ourselves stories and our stories aren't always completely consistent or logical at all times and we don't want to be deposed by a dinner companion no and let's also agree that this guy does he have enough uh, perspective on his own actions to know this is why things are failing. Clearly, that is not a great way to ha behave on a date. I wouldn't like that either. No one likes that. No one that doesn't actually inspire any flow. But I'm not convinced, based on his own interpretation, that he knows exactly why things are falling apart. I mean, because a little playful disagreement can be sexy. It's fine. It could be fine. You can have a little argument at work or, or argument over dinner, over drink, over a, a date. You know, sometimes people do like to spar. They just don't want people nodding and smiling at them the whole time. They want to have a conversation that can go to difference. But or like you said, he's like he's a beautiful mind and someone could be totally turned on. By but if you go into scold aspect. lecture mode, if you are the king of mansplaining, <laughs> which you described as lab code mode. Right. Right. Yeah, lab code mode. That is a pussy dehydrator and a dick shriveler. Yeah, the lab, the lab coat mode itself could be amazing. Someone could be totally into that. Yeah, but the, the guy who comes in it is right now the problem. My advice for him would be to call some ex-girlfriends and ask them to be brutally, logically honest with you about how you came across to them when you went into lab coat mode. I would also go to friends, family members, uh, Facebook friends. <laughs> I think you can cast a wide net on this because I'm pretty sure everyone around this guy has said something. And they might just be like, no, 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 got nothing to do with that. You're a dick. And this may be a job for pot. <laughs> 
hey, you know what? That is the first thing I hit my head too. I was really? like, this guy maybe just needs to loosen up. Needs to like, get high before a date. Needs to get high. Maybe like, you know, try a nice bottle of wine. I don't know. Something that just makes you fun, loving. Who cares? A little looser. Take the edge off. Keep the lab coat on. I think that's actually kind of I mean, what fun. people are looking for in a partner is somebody who can love them for their faults. And even if you're sometimes going to correct someone for their faults, you're going to do it in a way that makes them feel better for having had the conversation, feel like they're supporting you and building you up. So even if somebody like says something that's crazy, you don't have to address it in the moment, but there has to be a way to address it that you're not capable of doing right now if everybody that you have any sort of disagreement with runs screaming. Right. Oh, my God, that sex was incredible. It's the best I've ever had in my life. Well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You can't know that to be true. Your lifespan is short enough that we don't know. We stopped taping for a second, and one of the shy tech-savvy at-risk youth who does not wish to come on the program ever because her homeschooling parents don't know where she is or who she works for (laughs) pointed out that – he had the option, perhaps, of dating other women in STEM professions, science, technology, whatever and whatever, and he's opting not to. It sounds like he's maybe intentionally going out and finding women who aren't as smart as he is or as scientific as he is so that he can scold and correct and feel superior to them. Right. So this could go deeper than just you've drawn the short straw and gone on a bunch of dates with a bunch of dopes. And could be instead you are choosing to go on dates with dopes so that you can pull the lab coat on and be an asshole. And never have to feel like they will ever meet you on any level, which I think is uh, also something very, very common. Some some guys, some women are just like, I don't want to be challenged. That would be hurtful. But then they can't understand why it doesn't work out. It's like, yeah, because these people don't respect Like, you don't have any respect for them, and then they feel that, and they have no respect for you. Yeah. Henry Higgins only gets the girl in the musical. That's right. Henry Higgins doesn't get the girl in real life. And if you don't get that reference, you need to go watch My Fair Lady, (laughs) and you will get that reference. I would love to see, though, two of these Labco's logical thinkers, if this is who they really are, at a beautiful, like, well-dressed, just beautifully groomed, sitting at a romantic candlelit dinner and just sparring back and forth. Well, I thought when you used the word all of my life, you were meaning up until now. Well, I think when you used the word, yeah, literally just back and forth. I thought you literally meant olive, (laughs) like the one in my martini. You need to enunciate better. If you wish to date me. (laughs) We get the check? Technically, it is not a check. All right. (laughs) Ophira Eisenberg, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. For Listeners of my stupid podcast who haven't heard your stupid podcast <laughs> yes. yet, would you like to tell them about your stupid podcast? Sure. Uh, the podcast that I am part of, it's a public radio show also available as a podcast. And it's a trivia comedy quiz show called Ask Me Another. Uh, we also have great VIP guests who we I interview and then we play fun games with, like the one and only Dan Savage. I was on the show. I love the show. It's hilarious. I have it on my podcast downloads and I listen to it it's on the It's a good radio time. And Seattle. I feel like uh, we gave you some good questions about people's rela- that NPR public radio friendly relationship <laughs> questions, <laughs> which let me tell you. Yeah. They, I've been yeah. doing public radio long enough that I have a public radio sort of parallel universe version of myself that I can inhabit when oh, I Oh, yeah. Need no, to. true professional. That came, came across immediately. We're all just like, wow, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And made everyone in the uh, crowd be like, maybe I do have a chance. You do. <laughs> Everyone in the crowd has a chance. The show's great. Ask me another. NPR. 
at Ask Me Another at iTunes? How do they find it? If yeah, you if you just it. go to iTunes and look for Ask Me Another, also Stitcher, tune in, like everything, or you can go to the NPR website slash Ask Me Another. Thank you so much for sitting in with us today. It was a blast. Thank you. Amazing. Hi, Dan. I'm from Canada, and my little brother has he came out last year as gay. Um, he's 18 years old, and our family really la- rallied behind them, and we felt that we... Um, we didn't give him any grief by anything. We just tried to support him to make sure that he was comfortable with things. And it explained a lot of why he was so miserable in high school, um, especially with why he is so distant from our dad. My dad is a typical, like, Italian father that, like, is Catholic and he loves his religion. But since my brother came out, he felt that it was like that the Catholic Church was persecuting my brother. So he backed off and he says he won't support the Catholic Church until they changed our views because he thought that was what was bothering my brother so much. So fast forward to this summer, my brother has dropped out of university and moved home and is doing a lot of drugs in my parents' home and having his friends over all the time, uh, essentially partying it up kind of in my parents' household. And every time they try and fight with him about it and say, you can't smoke a bunch of weed in our house, um, he throws it in their face that they're just doing this because he's gay and he's miserable. And it's just so hard being gay in our smaller Ontario city that um, he's just going to kill himself if they don't let him party like he wants to, essentially. My parents don't really know what to say about this. My mother blames herself for not protecting him when he was younger. Uh, My dad uh, has given up kind of trying to have a relationship with him. He's tried for the last five years hard to do anything he could to bond with his son, and my brother mocks him. My brother mocks our sister, who's been trying all summer to um, bond with him, to have a relationship, and every time she does something... He stands her up. He makes fun of her. So I pretty much, I have a crying sister, upset parents, um, and a brother who is just not willing to talk to anyone. He won't even call, return my calls. I live far away, so I can't feel like I can't um, negotiate or help this situation at all, at all. And my parents are at a loss for what to do. So when he throws it in their face that they are persecuting him for his sexuality, which they have never, ever done. Um, I just, I, it's kind of hard watching my whole family be incredibly upset by a brother who is just an asshole. I've seen this before where somebody comes out to their family and then uses the charge of homophobia as a stick to beat their family, that they leverage their family's desire to be supportive into license to get away with fucking bloody murder, to do things that straight kids in the family wouldn't be allowed to do to get away with shit that otherwise nobody would put up with for an instant because the family's so cowed by these melodramatic charges of being anti-gay or homophobic or their criticism of the drug taking and the partying and the assholery as being homophobic or motivated by anti-gay animus. So paralyzed by that charge that the shitty, shitty gay person gets away with bloody fucking murder. Some gay people are shitty people. The longer a shitty person gets away with, particularly shitty adolescent, treating people like shit, the likelier that shitty adolescence is to extend into a shitty adulthood or just become an all-encompassing shitty lifetime. So your family needs to push back against this hard and in a unified way. All of you, a little intervention, not to talk him out of being gay, but to tell him that you love and support him And you have no problem with the gay thing. All of you, you have a problem with the asshole thing and the asshole thing and your family's willingness to put up with the assholery stops now. No more drugs in this house. Drugs in this house, you're out of this house. You cannot live here and do these things. It has nothing to do with dick in your mouth. It has to do with 
drugs in the house, period, the end. And this emotionally abusive behavior stops now. He may believe, and it may actually be true, that the assholery, the way he's treating all of you, is some residual expression of anger about how he was treated himself and what it felt like. He may be lashing out now, now that he can, because of everything that he was bottling up between 11, 12, and 17, 18. That stuff that he needs to unpack with a therapist, maybe a few sessions with a family counselor for all of you to process this would be helpful. Maybe he does have legitimate anger that he needs to express in a constructive and legitimate way, which is not treating everyone like shit and abusing your parents and doing things in their house that they do not want done in their house. And if he can't get there, he's an adult. He's 18 fucking years old. He can move the fuck out. And there's nothing homophobic about that. Kicking him out because he's gay? Yeah, that's pretty fucking homophobic. Telling him that he will have to get his own apartment or studio apartment or move in with roommates if he wants to smoke pot in his living space, that is not anti-gay. Shut him down. When he throws out, this, you're just doing this because I'm gay, just repeat, this has nothing to do with you being gay. It's nothing to do with you being gay. Smoking marijuana in your parents' house is not a gay thing. Being rude to your mother, being a shitty, nasty person is not a gay thing. It's a thing, and it's a thing we will not put up with. Hey, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old gay man living in uh, Northeast City, single. But I've been dating a guy for the past couple months who's in a long-term relationship, so he's in a polyamorous relationship. As I said, we've been dating for a couple months, and things are going great there. It's a, what you'd consider a pretty run-of-the-mill secondary relationship. I'm still dating other guys. I hang out with his partner sometimes. We get along great. It's all on the up and up. But a lot of my friends seem confused by the setup. When they ask me about this relationship, they seem to be almost accusing me of wanting to split these two guys up or wanting this guy all to myself. And it's kind of infuriating because I feel like they're just not understanding the fundamentals of open polyamorous situation. And I don't know how to handle it. I want to talk to them about it and let them know that they're not understanding me correctly. But every time I start to gather my thoughts about it, I get kind of pissed off and angry. So any advice you can give would be great. Thanks a lot. Your question serves as a kind of public service announcement reminding people that even gay people can be clueless about non-monogamy, monogamous relationships, poly relationships, open relationships. Uh, I don't know how you deal with this without powering through the frustration. You have friends who obviously know no one else who's uh, polyamorous or in open relationships and they have faulty assumptions about what it means to be dating someone who's a part of an established couple. And it rests with you. It's an opportunity for you to educate them, not by you know sitting them down in a classroom and getting up at the chalkboard and drawing a diagram, but just by sharing your lived experience where you say when they say or they treat you like you're some sort of homewrecker or you wish you could have the guy that you're dating all to yourself. You say, well, that's not how – it works. This is a polyamorous relationship. I'm 
his boyfriend. He has another boyfriend. He, he has a husband. He has a primary partner. I am not in competition with his primary partner. I'm getting as much of him as I want. And he gets as much of me as he wants. And we're very happy with things as they are. That's kind of what successful polyamory means and what it looks like. And it's wonderful. Period. The end. And you may have to say that more than once, depending on how many clueless friends you have. But typically, you only really do need to explain that to someone once. And often when people are rolling out their misconceptions, sometimes it sounds like they're making a statement when they're actually asking a question. Like, oh, don't you, you must want to be with him. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this relationship. And what they're saying is, do you want to be with him? Why else would you be in this relationship if you didn't want to be with him? And you can, for the poly side, jump in and explain to that person in that moment. And once their curiosity is satisfied, that should be enough. And then seeing you stay with this guy without, for as long as you're with him, without making any attempt to end his relationship will be the clincher. It'll prove to them that your relationship functions the way you described it, that you didn't have ulterior motives, that something else wasn't in the offing. And hopefully they will then be educated and not say these stupid things to the next friend, gay or straight or bi, that they have or meet, the next person that they come to know who's in your circumstance. In a way, poly people are where so many of us gay people were 20, 30 years ago. I couldn't when I was you know, gay and in my 20s and I would meet somebody who was straight – would invariably go to this place where they would ask if you were in a relationship, who's the woman? I don't hear that question anymore. Ever. Hardly ever hear that anymore. Nobody asked that anymore. That's a, that's a freakishly strange question. People got over that. People got past it because enough gay people are like, there is no woman. Two men can be in a relationship. Somebody has it. It doesn't have to be the woman. If you mean who's the penetrated partner, sometimes me, sometimes him, that doesn't magically turn one of us into a woman for the moment. We answered that question until people got it. And now poly people are in that place where people have assumptions. People had assumptions about relationships. There had to be a man, had to be a woman, or it couldn't be a relationship. So if it was a relationship, somebody had to be playing the male role, somebody playing the female role, or it couldn't be a relationship. Now people get that two men or two women can be in a relationship without one of them having to be the man and one having to be the woman. Now we're in the same place with poly where people have these misconceptions that no one would ever date somebody unless they wanted to or hoped to be that person's only partner or primary partner, that person's spouse, to have that person, as your friends say, all to themselves. But that's how most people understand relationships, that there's this innate hardwired desire to possess that person totally, to have them all to yourself. And so they project that shit onto your polyamorous relationship because that's how they understand relationships. Just like people would project on gay couples their gendered shit about relationships. And we had to just say and say and say and answer and answer and answer until people got over it. And so poly people, as more poly people come out, now find themselves in that same spot where people project their monogamous relationship shit onto you that's inaccurate and maybe even insulting a little bit. And you're going to have to say and say and say and answer and answer and answer until people get it. And that saying, 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 answering, answering, answering can be exhausting. It can feel annoying. It can feel like an obligation that you didn't ask for. But the quickest way to not hearing that question anymore, just like it's so rare now to hear who's the woman, the quickest way to get to that point where you aren't being asked that question is to answer that question until people stop asking it. Hey, Dan. I just listened to episode 449, and I wanted to comment on the woman who can't have male friends 
I have the same problem. And over the years, I've asked friends and even some of the guys themselves why this keeps happening. In short, the problem seems to be that I treat my guy friends exactly the same way I treat my female friends. Because I'm gay, I don't stress about censoring my body language. And guys aren't used to women acting so forward and unguarded. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. And if men can't take no, or in my case, lesbian, for an answer, I think they really should just go fuck off. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about your advice to the guy whose inexperienced 20-year-old girlfriend just lies there during sex. Uh, you said to get a copy of uh, Debbie Urbanik's book and then, and then talk to her after she's read it. And I don't know if just handing her a book and giving her some homework is really the best way to draw her out. I think that uh, maybe having gentle conversations where you broach the subject artfully uh, might be better than, hey, read this book because you've got some problems, girl. Hey, this is a response to uh, the guy with the dead fish girlfriend. Gotta say, uh, I have uh, I have experienced quite an interesting thing since my 22-year uh, marriage. Uh, I'm back out in the field, and uh, a little bit of talking, uh, a lot of touch, and uh, a basic rule that uh, there is no penetration until she's had an orgasm just changes everything. Uh, I am not exceptionally endowed. There's nothing really special about me, but women that I've been with in the last four years have consistently called me the greatest lover they ever had, mostly because, almost exclusively because I talk and I draw them out. And the thing that they comment the most on is that I make sounds. I let them know. I give them feedback. When I let them know and give them feedback, they let me know and give me feedback. And everything changes. I've seen women just completely come out of out of shelves, and it is absolutely spectacular. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Call for submissions for Hump Porn Festival. Go to humptour.com and click on Submit for information about getting your film, your short amateur porn film, into Hump and on next year's Hump Tour. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Ophira Eisenberg on Twitter at O P H I R A E. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for